Well, I wanted to begin our new year, our first Sunday of the new year. I wanted to begin talking about worship, the all-important topic of our worship as we go into a new year. And specifically, I want to talk to you today, I want us to talk about the use of liturgy, liturgy in our worship as a congregation. The use of liturgy in our worship as a congregation. Might sound kind of funny to you. But I want us to understand the importance of worshiping with purpose. And we're going to talk about this. And what I wanted to do is read from Luke's Gospel... There's four verses. I want to read verse 16 and 17. And then I want to read verse 20 and 21. Now this is where Jesus goes into the synagogue in the town that he grows up in. And he reads this famous verse out of Isaiah, which was about himself. And this is what Jesus says. He tells them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now they didn't like what Jesus had to say about it. I don't want to talk about today that particular scripture that Jesus quoted. I want to talk about the fact that Jesus went to the synagogue and he actually participated in the worship that was conducted within the synagogue. So let's read this. I'm going to read these four verses Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, and then verses 20 and 21. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And then he reads the scripture from Isaiah. And when he had finished reading the scripture from Isaiah, verse 20, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all eyes who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, illuminate your word to us. Lord, reveal to us this truth that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, thought it important enough that he made it his custom to attend worship each week. Father, we ask that you would help us as your people in the earth today during this time of visitation, this is our time of visitation on the earth. Help us as your people in the earth today give witness to you, to your glory, to your gospel. Lord, yes, through our words, but also through our practice, through our actions. And our assembling for worship is one of the greatest witnesses that we give to this world who so desperately needs the light of Christ. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as Benjamin said, God gives us the grace to worship. And you being here today is because of God's grace. None of you got out of bed apart from God's grace. None of you drove here apart from God's grace. And none of you are sitting here listening to the word of the Lord apart from God's grace. These verses from Luke's gospel account reveal something about Jesus that we could miss if we're not careful. Rightly so, we often read these verses and we focus on what Jesus said when he quoted the prophet Isaiah. I want to look at the scripture from a different point of view today and not look at what Jesus read, but the fact that Jesus read that and the fact that he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what we might miss if we're not careful is that Jesus on a regular basis, it was his custom to participate in liturgical worship. Now, we're going to talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean. But let's look at these four verses very quickly here and just look at what they contain. Nazareth was the town in which Jesus was raised. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised up in Nazareth. That's where Mary and Joseph were living when they were called back to Bethlehem for the census. And that's where they went back to, and that's where Jesus was raised up and grew up from a boy into a man. And Nazareth, like most other towns, small or large, had a synagogue of the Jews, a place of worship. So it, what was required to start a synagogue was ten men. If you had ten men, you could start a synagogue. And this is why there were synagogues across the known world. Now, we talked a little bit about history last week. And in particular, by the time Jesus is born, the Roman Empire is ruling the known world. And they cover from Europe all the way over into Asia and parts of northern Africa. And throughout that known world of the Roman Empire that came into power after succession of previous empires. And in those previous empires, the Jews were conquered and they were dispersed throughout the world. And everywhere they went, they started synagogues. It's believed that it was in the Babylonian captivity that the synagogue system really became a, a mainstay of Jewish faith. Now, wherever and however it came to be, what we do know for a fact is that by the time Jesus is ministering in his earthly ministry, <clears throat> he goes to the synagogue on a regular basis. And so Nazareth, the town he's raised up in, he comes to the synagogue and it says his custom, this was his custom. His custom was to attend synagogue on the Sabbath. Going to the synagogue was customary for Jesus. It was his regular practice as a boy and as a man. And as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue for worship. And it says on this particular day, he stood up to read. And this indicates that Jesus was a participant in the liturgy of the synagogue service that day. Jesus would have stood up at a lectern 
In other words, he would have left his seat out there somewhere. He would have stood up and come here behind a lectern to read. And when he stood up to read, it says he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, I'm not going to talk about the structure of the synagogue service, but it was a liturgical service. In other words, Jesus was not the guest speaker that day who was the only one speaking. Now, he may have been the guest speaker because Jesus didn't just spontaneously get up and say, hey, I've got a word. Can I share it? That's not how it worked. This was a very structured service. And by the time Jesus walked the earth, during the synagogue service, you would have had on a Sabbath day, they had, they had synagogue service on the Sabbath, they had it on the second day, and they had it on the fifth day. And the reason they would do that is because, according to Jewish tradition, three days could not pass without the reading of the law. So before three days passed, the law had to be read. So on the Sabbath, on the second day, and on the fifth day, there was a synagogue service. And we know from this account in Luke that on the Sabbath day, Jesus went to the synagogue, that was his custom, and he stood up to read as part of that liturgy, which probably meant that the chief of that synagogue asked Jesus to read. Now, Jesus wasn't a priest in the order of Aaron. He wasn't a Levite. So he wasn't a priest. He would have been considered a common Israelite. So you would have had maybe a Levite, a priest, that would have read the, the readings from the law if they would have been available. So on the Sabbath, you would have had up to seven people read portions of Scripture. And the first reading would have been from the law. That was the first thing that was read. And each reader would have read no less than three verses from the law. And so, when Jesus is handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, not the law, but a book from the prophets, the prophets were read after the law. This reveals what part of the ordered service Jesus read and then expounded. The reading from the prophets came after the reading from the law. And upon the reading of the prophet, the reader would expound. All of this was at the request of the head of the synagogue. There was an order of service that Jesus would have followed just as anyone else participating in the service would follow. It is safe for us to assume that Jesus sat in the synagogue service and participated in worship every week, even most weeks when he was not called upon to read. He would have just been like any other Jew that was at synagogue worshiping God, hearing the reading of the law and hearing the reading of the prophets and hearing a teacher or a person expound on that reading. He opened, the scripture says, or what this literally says, he unrolled. So he opened the book. When we hear that, you're thinking this. This is not what Jesus opened. There was not a book like this that Jesus had. The book 
was a scroll. And the law was contained in this thing that wasn't like started in the beginning and rolled to the end. It was rolled so that when the law was unrolled, it was in the middle. So if you've ever seen a picture, you watched a movie where the Jews, uh, the, the attendant, the synagogue attendant, will bring out this big thing, and you open it up, and there's the scroll of the law. Well, what Jesus was given was a scroll rolled up, not like the scroll of the law, not like that big thing, but he was given a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And so he was handed this scroll, and he opened or he unrolled the book of the prophet Isaiah and found the place in the scroll that was to be read that particular Sabbath, and he read those verses. Now, it does not tell us if Jesus picked that verse on his own. But what we know about worship in the synagogue service, more than likely that was the reading for that day. Now, do you think it was an accident that Jesus, as was his custom, goes to synagogue every week? And on that particular day, when that particular uh, scripture from Isaiah was to be read, that the, the chief of the synagogue asked Jesus to read that? Hey, Jesus, I think this is about you. Maybe you should read this today. That's not how it happened. But here's what we know. Nothing happens apart from God's providence. It was the providence of God that Jesus, not only he went to the synagogue, he did that every week. That wasn't weird. That wasn't different. But on that particular day, he was asked to read the scroll of Isaiah. And when he read that, he read the very scripture that prophesied of him. And so he read that. And then at the end of that reading, he says, this day, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we could do a whole series of messages on, on just what Jesus read and the reaction that took place as a result of his reading. But that's not why we're looking at this scripture today. He opened, he unrolled it, he read it, and he rolled it back up. It says he closed the book, he rolled up the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now let me, let me show you what Jesus didn't do. He didn't unroll it, read it, roll it back up, give it to the attendant, and then go back to his seat and sit down. That's not what happened. When Jesus read the scripture and he rolled it back up and he gave it to the attendant, he sat down where he was. What is significant about that? Now look what, look what it says in the scripture here. It says he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Do you know why? Because when he read from the prophet, and he sat down, his setting down signified that he was getting ready to teach them. Now, I'm a pastor, I'm not a rabbi. This is a church, it's not a synagogue. But if I were not just a rabbi, if I was just the Israelite called on to read that day by the chief of the synagogue, 
I would, after my reading of the prophet, I would speak to you. Now, there were lots of different ways that could have taken place. For an untrained person, there might have been a trained person up there who was actually telling that person what to say. So, for instance, he would tell me in Hebrew, and then I would speak it in Aramaic. Because most of the people at that time probably spoke Aramaic. Or he would tell me what to say, and I would repeat it. That's not what happened with Jesus. Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what the Scripture meant. I'm just saying this because the synagogue service was very different in some ways than what we have today in our church services, that there were elements of it that were not that different. Like reading and expounding on the Scriptures. That's not a creation of Western Christianity. That's what God's people have been doing since the beginning. And we see examples of this through in the Scripture. Jesus, when he sat down, signified that he was going to teach them. He was going to expound on what he had just read. And he did. And he told them exactly what it meant. And they didn't like it. In fact, it was so disruptive, they ran him out of the synagogue. That wasn't the customary thing that happened during synagogue worship. But it happened that day because they did not like what Jesus had to say. Now, so Jesus sits down and everybody is watching him because he assumes the position of one who would teach and expound on the scripture that was just read. And this is why the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. We, we can read that and think that Jesus got up, came to the lectern, and read and went back and sat down. Or we could think, picture in our minds that Jesus stood up, somebody handed him the scripture, and he read it, handed it back, and then he sat down in his seat. That's not what happened. Jesus was called up as part of the liturgy of that service. He read that scripture as part of the liturgy of that service, not contrary to it, but in concert with the liturgy, the flow of that service. And he expounded on that verse, which was also part of the liturgy of that service. And it says, after he sat down and all eyes were on him, and he began to say to them, and he began to give them the meaning of the Scripture. He expounded on the Scripture. And this is where he says, today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he went on, and it says that they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? Remember, he grew up in Nazareth. Isn't this the son of that carpenter guy? Who is this guy? He actually sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And by the time Jesus finished expounding on what he had read, they literally were ready to kill him. 
So he expounds. He reads. He teaches. The Scripture from the Law to the Prophets and all the writings speak of Jesus. Not just the Scripture there in Isaiah. This is the importance of reading God's Word. This is the importance of studying God's Word. But just reading God's Word and allowing God's Word to wash over our minds, to plant the seed of God's Word in our heart. God's inspired Word from cover to cover, from beginning to end, points us to Jesus, reveals Christ to us. And all of Scripture, from the law to the prophets to the writings, are no less inspired and relevant for us today as they were then that day Jesus stood up and spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth because all of Scripture speaks of Christ and instructs us in His way. This is why... The argument that the Scripture is outdated, irrelevant, written by a bunch of old men in a time far removed from our modern sensibilities is a lie. Because the Word of God, the Scripture, is living. It's powerful. It is inspired by God. And it is just as powerful and relevant for us today to change our hearts, to renew our minds, to mold us and to shape us, and to save as it has been in any day and in any time. And what we see from these four verses in Luke's Gospel is that Jesus worshiped much like we do today. Now, I don't mean that our form of worship, our building, or or our style of worship was much like the worship Jesus participated in. What I mean is that Jesus had the custom of going to worship regularly, which meant He assembled for worship with the congregation regularly, weekly, at a minimum, Once a week, I believe Jesus probably was at the synagogue every time the Word was read because He is the Word. He is the living Word. He is the Word made flesh. And I believe every time He was in a place and there was a synagogue, Jesus was there as the living Word. His very presence testified of what was being read in the synagogue to God's people. These four verses in Luke 4 reveal that Jesus regularly attended synagogue and He participated in the liturgy of the service, just like everyone else would have. We see that Jesus participated in the liturgy when called upon by the leader of the synagogue to read and to speak. And from that, we can safely deduct that there were many other occasions when Jesus was just in the synagogue, a part of worship, just like any other Israelite would have been. 
In other words, Jesus didn't just go to worship because he got to speak. He went to worship because his father was worthy of his worship. Obviously, Jesus was not like everyone else who attended synagogue or read or spoke. But in one sense, he was. Jesus was just like any other faithful worshiper in the sense that it was customary for him to regularly attend synagogue. And like others, he worshiped God. He sat under the weekly liturgy with the readers and the speakers and the teachers that would conduct the customary service. Think about that for a moment. Think about Jesus being present in our worship service every week. Guess what? He is. Did you know that? Did we always think about someone sitting in a chair, a physical body sitting in a chair? And Jesus is in this worship service through the physical body sitting in the chair because Christ dwells in you by grace through faith in Him. And if you are born again, if you are a new creation in Christ, then you are the vessel of clay that contains the excellence and the glory of His Spirit. Just because Jesus is not a physical body like the guy we see in the paintings that we guess He looked like sitting in our pew, but Jesus is present here. The Lord is present here in our worship. From the record in Luke's Gospel, we have a very good idea of the kind of worship service Jesus customarily made Himself a part of each week. This is in large part how the historic liturgy of the Christian faith has come about. The liturgy of the church in large part comes from the ancient tradition of liturgy in the Jewish synagogue. The form of our liturgy can be traced all the way back to the covenant and sacrifices given to the children of Israel through Moses. There is deep meaning in all of this, which is why God desires us to make it our custom just as Jesus did, to worship together regularly as God's chosen people. Worship points us to God. And as we look to God, we learn much about ourself and our need for Him. Remember prophet Isaiah in chapter 6? I saw the Lord high and lifted up and His train filled the temple. And He says, I became as a dead man. Why? Because he saw, when he saw the Lord and seeing the Lord, he saw how unworthy he was. When he saw how worthy God was, he realized how unworthy he was. And he said, oh God, I am a man of unclean lips. Every one of us can say that safely right now. But it is the grace of God and this is what worship does. Worship points us to God. It, it directs us to God. And as we can see God more clearly, we see ourselves more clearly. We see how glorious God is and we see how inglorious we are. We see how worthy He is and we see how unworthy we are. But at the very same time, as we see Him, we see His grace. And it is His grace that has made it possible for us to come into His very presence. 
This is how worship not only reveals God to us, but it reveals ourselves and it reveals our need for God. Jesus was a model for us in all things, not the least being our model for worship. Jesus did not forsake worship or worshiping together with the people of God. It was the custom of Jesus to participate in corporate congregational worship on a weekly basis. And he did so to give to God the glory due his name. In our modern understanding, we have made worship more man-centered than God-centered. Now, I'm not saying, I don't think any, any pastor worth his salt, any worship leader who has any type of a heart for God sets out to just make it all about him or them. But our modern understanding of worship does exactly that. It sucks us into this thing in which worship can become very man-centered instead of God-centered. The service becomes more about entertaining or capturing the attention of the people for God instead of making the entirety of our worship centered on God. And when Jesus spoke in the synagogue that day in Nazareth, God was speaking to the people. But it was true every other Sabbath day that the Word of God was read. It's true each week in our service when we open the book and we read and we expound on God's Word. In our worship, centered in God and in His Word, God speaks to us. Worship is vital for God's people. Worship is more than we realize. It should be obvious that worship is more than singing songs or gaining information or knowledge from a sermon. It is certainly more than just checking a box for God. If worship is anything, it is a commitment to obedience, a commitment of obedience to God. Worship requires a renewed commitment of covenantal obedience to God. And what we say we believe is important. You do realize that. Your words matter. What we say we believe is important. Therefore, what we actually do or do not is even more important. Worship is important. Worship is the only right response we can give our Creator. And the goal of our worship is to bring pleasure to the heart of God. That means the focus of worship is first toward God before anyone or anything else. Worship must be purposeful or it is not truly worship, but simply false religion. Religion, by the way, is not a bad word. In our modern times, we've made religion a bad word. Religion's not a bad word. False religion is bad. True religion is good. Jesus was religious. Don't shy away from that. He was very religious. He was also absolutely holy and righteous and sinless. He believed in true religion. He practiced true religion. Worship is never haphazard. It was not that day in the synagogue in Nazareth when Jesus got up and he read and he spoke. It should not be for us today. 
We have many examples in Scripture where worship is conducted or was conducted haphazardly on man's terms only to find that God does not accept such worship. God is purposeful in His commands concerning worship. We can be tempted to believe a style of worship without form or structure is more free, more powerful, more intimate than a more structured style of worship. This idea would have been foreign to Jesus and to those of His day. Ideas such as this are often based on feelings or emotional attachments which we have grown accustomed to out of traditions that are not actually rooted in the Scripture. The truth is all worship has a liturgy. All worship has a form and a structure, but not all worship has the same liturgy the same form, or the same structure. There was a time in my life where I rejected everything that spoke of dead tradition or dead religion. And if it looked like that or sounded like that, I didn't want to have anything to do with it because I thought it was dead. And if you would have asked me 20 years ago, if I'm a liturgical preacher, I would have laughed at you inside of myself. Probably would have been respectful on the outside, but I would have laughed on the inside and felt sorry for the person who asked me that, who actually was trapped in some dead liturgy or dead tradition. I have since repented. I'll just be honest with you. Because what I didn't realize back then was I actually had a liturgy. It just looked very different from what I thought all liturgies were. Every worship service has a form, has a structure, has something governing that worship. So everyone's got a liturgy. It's just the question is, what is our liturgy? What is governing us? What is dictating the form and the structure of our worship? People have no problem adhering to prescribed forms that govern their words and actions for all sorts of things. But when it comes to worship, Some Christians reject the idea of prescribed forms for words and actions as spiritually weak or spiritually dead. Some believe if it's not spontaneous, it's not spiritual. That is obviously not true. Otherwise, we would have to question the very use of Scripture in our worship services. Because there's nothing spontaneous about the Bible I'm reading from. It existed long before I did, and it's going to exist long after I do. What's in it is very predictable. I can turn to page number, verse number, chapter number, and I know exactly what it says. And it better say that, or it's not the Word of God. Prescribed forms governing words and actions in worship are seen by some as quenching the Spirit and therefore hindering people from entering into true spiritual worship. And what some would describe as true spiritual worship can be just as dead in a free-form worship service as it can be in a structured worship service. Worshiping in spirit and in truth is not worshiping without form or structure. God structures and governs His entire creation. God's very creation is filled with structure. Creation is governed by the words and the actions of God's prescribed form. In that sense, all creation is one grand, ongoing worship service of infinite structure, order, beauty, and precision. As we begin to comprehend that truth in a greater way, it will help us gain a greater sense 
of the wonder, the power, and the importance of our corporate worship. In worshiping the Creator, our heart most definitely matters. You can go through the motions. It can mean nothing to you. But that doesn't mean the motions you're going through, the words you're saying, the things you're reading, the things you're participating in don't matter. They just may not matter to you. That's a problem between you and God that needs to get fixed, that needs to be repented of. Our heart matters, but no less important is all that the Creator has prescribed for worshiping Him. He has much to say about it that we should not simply dismiss. As a congregation, our desire is to take God's Word and apply it in our worship of Him. In our corporate expression, we join with creation in the wonderful and beautiful and powerful rite of worship. It is to this end that we seek to better understand the power of liturgy in worship. Merriam-Webster defines liturgy as follows, a rite or body of rites prescribed for public worship or a customary repertoire of ideas, phrases, or observances. A rite is a prescribed form or manner governing the words or actions for a ceremony or the ceremonial practices of a church. We participate in these knowingly or unknowingly every week. Not just now, but any worship service you go into, whatever form it takes, this is what you're participating in. Very simply, our liturgy is the prescribed form or manner governing the words and the actions of our rite of worship. We could say that liturgy is the what, when, where, and how of our corporate worship of God. We're talking about why this is important. And it is important. Because the more we understand worship as pictured for us in the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, because it's all God's Word, Remember, the Old Testament didn't expire once the New Testament got here. All of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is equally inspired and equally powerful. So we want to understand worship from the entirety of Scripture. And the more we understand the power and the importance of our words and our actions in worship, prescribed or not, the more meaningful and powerful our worship will be for us personally and for us corporately. And worship is both personal and corporate. In corporate worship, our personal worship is to serve the corporate experience and mission. In our corporate worship, we are having both a personal worship experience and a corporate one. In corporate worship, my personal worship does not take precedence over the rest of the congregation. In other words, my experience during worship is not more important than your experience. That's, that's technically the way it's supposed to work. Now, I know practically it doesn't work that way because sometimes we're just selfish people. Sometimes I'm just selfish. And I have to repent of being selfish. I'm not more important than someone else. My experience in worship is not more important than your experience in worship. Our experience together is what is important. In corporate worship, 
my personal worship doesn't take precedence over the rest of the congregation. As with our physical bodies, each individual member is working together. My hand's doing something, my feet are doing something, my organs are doing something, but they're all doing it together as one body to make my mission, my task of preaching to you today a reality. And, and that's true for whatever task we have at hand. This is true for congregational worship. As the body of Christ, when we assemble together in obedience to God's word, our primary task, personally and corporately as one body, is the pleasing worship of our Lord. Our corporate expression of worship, when assembled together, is the primary function of our personal worship experience. In that corporate expression of worship, we benefit both personally and corporately from the grace that flows from Him in our worship. And we are built up both individually and corporately. We have our children in here. Yes, the ones that are quiet and the ones that are crying. Crying babies aren't a problem. We are here in this room together, worshiping together, and there's a reason why we have our babies in here on purpose. Because we're teaching them how, by our example, how to worship. Those crying babies will grow up and they won't always cry in church. And they'll know what to do in worship because they've participated in worship from, the, from, from before when they were born, hopefully. Every pregnant mother in this place is carrying her child and that child is part of this worship service. So even before children are born, they are in that worship service, participating vicariously through their mother in that worship. And when they're born, they learn how to worship because they're watching mom and dad and they're watching everybody else. And they actually become participants in that worship. All the kids that can sing the doxology, why? Because someone sat down and made them memorize it? No, because week in and week out, they sing it together and they learned it because they're like little sponges. That's why we need to be careful with what we allow them to absorb because they're absorbing all kinds of things, whether you realize it or not. So we assemble in obedience to God's word. We worship corporately. And our corporate worship is a blessing to us individually as well as to us corporately. Our worship in the assembly is about the assembled people worshiping the one true God as one united body. When we assemble for corporate worship, we're not here to have our own personal worship experience, though we rightly do have a personal experience in corporate worship. Our worship is not corporate simply because we're all together in one place individually worshiping. That's not the picture of true corporate worship in the Scripture. Rather, our personal worship experience is in the context of the corporate experience. Therefore, our focus is not on the quality of our personal worship experience, but on the glory of the corporate worship being offered up as one body to the Lord. We want our worship to be glorious and glorifying to God. Our liturgy, our prescribed form governing our words and our actions in worship is to create a corporate experience that is both glorious and glorifying to God. 
Our corporate worship is to be a function of unity as the body of Christ. And through a prescribed form, worshipers participate in the priestly function given to them in Christ as they respond to God in prayer and song and action. You know what the difference is between the synagogue worship Jesus sat in and read in and our worship today? In Jesus' day, you could have had a synagogue worship that Jesus could have been a participant in and there not be a Levite or a priest present in that service which meant there were certain things that may or may not have been, you've been able to do. Jesus was handed the prophets because he wasn't a priest. He wasn't handed the law. He was not handed the law because he was not a priest. Jesus had no right to go into the temple and officiate over sacrifices before he sacrificed himself on the cross because there was still a priesthood that came from Aaron, from Levi, the Levites. That priesthood that came from the loins of Levi, the son of Jacob, was still in effect. But the difference now is that Jesus, our great high priest, has ascended into the heavenlies and he is the high priest over an order of priesthood that is not from Levi, that is not from Aaron. In fact, it is the order of Melchizedek, not because he's a descendant of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek was a picture of Christ. And the Bible now says that you are kings and priests. You're not just priests, but it says you're king, you're royalty. You're a royal priesthood, Peter says. A royal priesthood. Which means you have been given priestly rights to participate in the worship. To proclaim His Word. To profess and to confess His Word. To pray, to come to the very throne of grace. Because Jesus has made a way and he has made you part of his priesthood. And he sits as our great high priest in the heavenly. Corporate worship on earth takes place. But there is also worship that takes place in heaven. The beauty and the power of corporate worship is not just seen and experienced here. In Hebrews the letter to the Hebrews is a book about worship. It's a letter all about worship. And Hebrews gives us a glimpse of this. Hebrews 12.1, the writer says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church 
of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. In other words, in worship we come to Mount Zion to join with that innumerable cloud of witnesses that surrounds us and has gone before us. And this letter to the Hebrews is about worship. It instructs and warns the readers of this letter that their worship not only matters to God, but it matters, it is a matter of life and death for them if they choose to ignore God's commands and worship in a manner contrary to that. It could literally cost them their lives. That warning was issued in this letter. And I don't say that to scare us, but to remind us that God takes our worship seriously. And this is why the writer of Hebrews is warning these worshipers, Christ alone by His blood has made a way for us to come to the throne of grace. Our worship is to honor God and to honor the way that He has made for us to come to Him. In worship, spiritually, we ascend to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the general assembly the church of the firstborn, the holy Jerusalem. This is a picture of corporate worship. We also see a picture of ordered corporate worship in the heavens throughout the book of Revelation. In it, we see multiple pictures of corporate worship in heaven with prescribed form governing words and actions. And all of these pictures of worship provide a picture of the unified body of Christ along with angels and living creatures worshiping God corporately. And when the bride of the Lamb is pictured descending, she descends to the earth in a corporate picture. Worship throughout the book of Hebrews is a picture of corporate worship. Jesus is the great high priest of His people called to worship Him and to worship Him alone. Therefore, our worship gives witness It gives witness on earth. It gives witness in heaven. Listen to Ephesians 3.10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul describes that the church is now making known the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and to powers in the heavenly places. And the most important and powerful way we do this through corporate worship. Corporate worship is one of the most important and powerful ways that we give witness to the manifold wisdom of God. It's not just your neighbors who see you get up every Sunday morning and come to church. It's the powers and principalities in the heavenly places that witness the assembling of the saints the called out ones, the assembly of called out ones, that's what the word church means, who come together to worship God and to make known and to manifest His manifold wisdom. In our worship, we make known our obedience to God and we make known on earth and in heaven God's manifold wisdom revealed in His church. To God be all the glory for He has called us and He has given us the grace to worship Him. And my prayer and my encouragement is that we do not take that grace lightly, that we do not take that call lightly, that we would 
make it a manner of custom, just as Jesus did, to worship God regularly. And that grace to worship has been demonstrated for us, has been made real for us in the sacrifice of Jesus. When Jesus gave up His body and poured out His blood in the cross. We come to the table every week. This is part of our worship. If we did not come to the table for communion, there would be no true worship. Coming to the table is an absolute vital part of worship. It's why we come every week. Because we would not have a worship service if we did not come to this table. Because this table proclaims the very one we worship and the very reason we are able to worship. Here at Christ Fellowship Church, we invite all to the table, not just members of our particular body, but if you count yourself a member of God's body, a member of God's covenant people, you've been baptized into the covenant, and you count yourself a member, whether you're an adult or whether you're the child of covenant members, we embrace children coming to the table as covenant members. That's why we baptize babies. Next week, we're going to baptize. You've not been baptized, and you need to be, we're going to baptize next Sunday morning. So I would encourage you, contact me. I would love to visit with you about that. But you are, as you trust in Jesus, invited to come to this table today to proclaim the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand. Here is your charge, your commission. We are commanded in Scripture to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that command to assemble is the command to consider one another and to provoke one another to love and to good work. Our love and good works must begin in our worship of God, in our love for God, and in our love for God's people to give witness to His wisdom and His glory in heaven and on earth. The corporate worship of Christ's church is the assembly of the individuals as one body joined together in Christ, functioning together as one through words and actions to build up the body to the glory of God. This is our worship. This is our warfare. This we are commanded to do both faithfully and courageously for one another's good and for His glory. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you.